0: Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast on the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We have around 6,000 members worldwide and around 50 branches. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 29th of May, 2023. This is episode 302. On this week's Dispatches podcast, I talk to ornithologist, author and historian, Nicholas Milton, about his recent book on the role of birds in the Great War. This book is published by Pen and Sword. Nicholas spoke to me from his home in England. Nicholas, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. May you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in birds, the role of birds and the Great War.
1: Sure. Thank you. Well, It's it's great to be here, um, Tom. Um, I became interested. Um, I think uh, my first job uh, was with the RSPB. I was always interested in conservation, always interested in the environment, always wanted to work in it. And um, I um, uh, that was my that was my first role. And um, I spent quite a few, quite a bit of my career working in conservation, um, working for um uh, charities, um, uh, RSPB Wildlife well Trusts. I've spent some time with Greenpeace. So I'm a, I'm an environmentalist, Tom, and, and you know I'm a, and, I, and I love birds. Um, but also um, I had um, two grandfathers, one of whom I remember very well, who had fought in the First World War, and um, uh, you know I was always I always looked up to uh, him, um, the one that was the one that I sort of remember lived longer, um, and um, he. He fought out in Palestine. Um, he fought for the Wiltshire Regiment under under Allenby. And you know, and, and as a child, I was fascinated. And you know, he used to regale me with all his stories. And um, so, when lockdown came, um, Tom, I was able to combine these two things. You know, which was great because I always sort of thought I always wanted to write a book about about birds um, and um, uh, about about war as well because they have a really really important role to play in both world wars. Um, but in the but in the great war in particular. So yeah that's how, that's that's how it came about.
0: Right. Well let's start with um the state of ornithology in 1914 prior to the outbreak of what 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 was the sort of general popular perception and interest in birds and wildlife at that time?
1: Well at that time you know ornithology was had become a very much an established science. Um unlike today Tom it was taught in a lot of schools so all all public schools um, would have had um, uh, would have had a bird club, um, would have had probably a taxidermy collection as well, which, again, not something that we would do these days. Um, but, um, you know, the natural history clubs, et cetera, would have been a very important part of um, uh, part of school life. Um, now, um, the RSPB was a fledgling organisation at the time, um, but it had got its royal charter and it was, it was doing a big campaign against what it called m- murderous millinery. This was wearing, uh, you know, feathers, feathers being worn in women's um, hats. Um, And it had got the plumage bill. It got got it to the second stage of reading um, when the First World War broke out. And that bill, along with everything else, was put on hold. Um, So what you had at the the outset of the First World War was um, was uh, an awful lot of um, uh, people, um, particularly those who, as I say, who were educated in, in, in the private sector, had, um, had a real background in ornithology and a passion and a love for it. Um, it wasn't just at school, but you know, also at home uh, as well. Um, you had um, you didn't have a particularly well-established uh, conservation movement like you do at the moment, though that was beginning to grow. Um, and um, yes, but you also had had large parts of, the, of, of, of both Britain and around the world that still hadn't really been properly explored. So we didn't have a, a definitive bird list, for example, even in this country, let alone. Um, in in more exotic parts and so there was still a lot of uh, what I would call exploration and expeditions to be done um, by people who were passionate and interested and of course we had an empire then Tom so that opened up lots of exciting opportunities around the world for for people who had the um, you know had the passion and and the connections to be able to exploit that.
0: Now, in your book, you talk about the, the fact that the BEF and the army that's sent to France is, quote, the, quotes, the best bird watching army ever sent to war. So why was it the best?
1: It was the best, Tom, because, you know, about 120,000 soldiers, you know, went across to, to, uh, to the mobilisation um, to France at the beginning of the First World War. And there were thousands, probably, of both amateur birders and professional ornithologists among that um, expeditionary force, and um, what you had was, you know, um, uh, you know, at the very start of the First World War, you know, we forget, you know, after after Germany invaded, you know, first Belgium, then and then France, um, uh, we had, you know, very quickly had static warfare. We had trench warfare, which 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 you know carried on pretty much for the duration of the whole of the First World War. So what you had was. Lots and lots of of people who had um, a passion for bird watching and had experience of it and who were stuck, to be honest with you, (laughs) um, in a very static war um, in the trenches. And um, as a result of that, you know, they obviously started writing letters home. Uh, You'll know that at the very start of the First World War, those letters home weren't censored. And um, they they were certainly later on. Um, uh, But what um, what they started to to contain was was lots of really interesting um, reports of birds that, that, you know, mainly officers. But all the ranks had seen from private upwards um, in the trenches, um, both in the trenches and behind when they went for for R&R. Um, and um, uh, these started to get picked up by the newspapers and the journals of the time, and um, you know it was a great way of whining away the hours because there was an awful lot of boredom in the First World War. We're very used to all the, the you know, the, the, the uh, you know, the blood and the, the and, and the misery and the, um, you know, going over the top, etc. There was an awful lot of hanging around in the First World War, um, um, but I think also it brought. Um, not only did it bring solace but it brought hope as well to a lot of these they could see the changing of the seasons they would see you know a lot of birds in particular I think lived cheap by jowl with a lot of the troops a lot of the you know in the trenches apart from some huge great rats which which, which we're all very familiar with um, there would have been lots of birds in you know in the trenches as well there was there, there would have been large flocks of sparrows that went up and down the trenches um, feeding on the seeds that had been um, exposed during all the ex- you know all the excavations or all, the, all the digging um swallows nested in a lot of the huts and you know in, in in the trenches as well you'd have birds of prey going up and down because of all the rats um and you know in the skies above the trenches as well you'd have had you know birds like the skylark singing continuously and um what my book shows really um which is quite amazing was despite you know the noise and the devastation and the death and you know all the rest of it the birds carried on pretty much regardless um and um so i think that uh, uh, that's, that that was why uh, it was the best um bird watching army ever sent to war so <laughs> so tell us
0: some tell us some of the best sort of stories um of birds and and, and what soldiers saw in the trenches that they sent back to their families and then and, and their local newspapers
1: OK, well, um, there, were lots of, there, were, there were lots of anecdotes and stories and things. And as I say, you know, over time, they started to get picked up you know, by the national newspapers and then um, by the journals of people like the RSPB and others. One of the stories that I, I found most amazing was there was a, um, a private, um, pickering. Now, private pickering. A private pickering was part of a, uh, a six-man team, um, and he had a, a quick-firing 4.5-inch howitzer. Um, which was horse drawn uh, and you would know that they, these were these were situated back um, from the trenches, and they would just pound the German positions sort of day in day out, and you know the artillery bombardment would start at dawn and he was he was responsible for one of these um these howitzers and um, uh, he um, he like all the rest of them had to had to disguise them um, from the air, so he they were all covered in branches and you know leaves and twigs and that sort of thing, and in um the um, spring of 1915 he records this amazing thing so so this blackbird decides to build its nest right in his howitzer so um in a in a small lull in the in, in the firing he said we went four days without firing it and it made a deafening noise when they did this this bird you know made a nest and, and laid three eggs and he was absolutely, you know, he was absolutely astounded and really, you know, uh, really taken aback. And he obviously told the rest of the members of his crew. And then they then, you know, then the guns started up again. And he said, amazingly, when they stopped, um, the bird came back again and laid another two eggs. So by the end of the first week, you know, they, it was sitting on five eggs on a, on a howitzer that was being fired pretty much daily in, the, in which the noise was deafening. And all of the members of the crew started to really, really respect this bird. And, you know, you, you've got to remember that they were, uh, you know the huge psychological pressure they were under and you know and they really wanted this bird to bring off you know, you know to 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 these to, to eggs so amazingly you know when she when she used to come along um if they possibly could they would stop firing the, the you know the gun so she could hop on the nest when she hopped off they would then start firing it again and it's just little stories like that and he wrote all of this back to his um you know, back to his father, um, back home in Buckinghamshire. It's little stories like that. I think amazing. Of course, you know, like, like so many others, he 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 died. But that's um, it, it was, and there was life in amongst death. There wasn't there. There was there was you know, and there was the hope that that the nature bring. But you know, no other no other animal would have ever attempted um, something like that. So it's, that was that was that was one of the that was one of the, one of the many inspiring stories that sort of really motivated me to write the book.
0: And did these, um, I suppose, did these interactions with wildlife actually have any impact on the morale and endurance of the frontline front soldier?
1: Absolutely, I think I think they were, um, I think they were really important for morale. Um, uh, look, you know, I mean, you, you can imagine the the, the pressure, the, the psychological pressure that, that that a lot of these troops were under. Um, you know, uh, how much they sort of dreaded going over the top, waiting for that, and all all this time, you know, hanging around in the trenches. Um, you know bird watching provided a distraction it provided um, enjoyment it provided something for them to concentrate on something for them to do that wasn't connected with the war Um, and it was also actively encouraged you know a lot of the officers um, were very interested in 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 birds and you know and that that enthusiasm would spread to other members you know of of, uh, you know of of their of their unit Um, and um, you know so you would get um, you know, we have this. We have this. Don't we have this vision, Tom, of, of, of no man's land? We've all seen it, you know, in, in 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 old footage, but you know, and also lots of films and things, you know, where there's there's dead and dying horses, aren't there? There's huge, great, you know, craters, and there's there's trees that've been blown to pieces, etc. You know, and there's nothing moving, and you know, nothing alive. Um, and that wasn't true. That wasn't, you know, that isn't isn't accurate. You know, what 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 these letters clearly, um, you know, the, the, the troops sent home show is how much was actually going on, you know, there were swallows flying around because there were masses of flies. But, you know, for example, there were there were skylarks singing up in the air Um, in between the barrages. You know, you'd have birds like hen harriers going up and down, quartering, you know, um, and um, partridges and things like that. You know, so it wasn't the barren, you know, uh, landscape that we're all led to believe. Nature carried on. And um, I think if you were interested, even if if you were interested, um, this obviously provided a spectacle and something for you to focus in on. And even if you weren't, I think, you know, I think a lot of soldiers were just amazed at at how um, resilient birds in particular were um, during, you know, during the lulls in the fighting.
0: Now let's let's turn to the home front. Now, what impact did the Great War have on birds in Britain, and I suppose wider field? I'm sort of thinking about thinking that the impact that maybe food production had on habitats and things like that.
1: Well, obviously, you know, when the First World War broke out, we imported the vast majority of our food, and um, uh, you know, unlike I've already mentioned, sparrows, sparrows were one of the most um, A common species that that shared the trenches with the troops and a lot of them came to know them and hand feed them and, you know, see them as friends. Um, But unfortunately, uh, at home here, our government took a very different view of them and decided that it was going to declare war on the humble house sparrow. Um, The reason for this is the farming fraternity, um, uh, you know, it was was established rural folklore among them that, that sparrows took up to a third of the harvest. And at the time, we were under huge pressure to grow more food. And the farmers wanted, this is my opinion, they wanted a scapegoat, and they turned to the sparrow. Um, and um the National Farmers Union, you know, was urging the government to do something about these what they call rats with wings. Um, and so they the government resurrected something called rat and sparrow clubs, which have been very um, common in Victoria times, cruel, um, callous clubs, whereby um, a bounty was put on the head of every um, humble house sparrow, and then people were paid to go out there and to kill them, either by shooting them or netting them or destroying their, their nests. Um, and this went this this sort of war on the house sparrow soon expanded into a war on all small birds in the countryside, because, unsurprisingly, a lot of um, people, uh, you know, um, wanted the money. So. Um, you know, and, and, you know, one small brown bird looked like another to a lot of to a lot of children. Children in particular were encouraged to do this by the Board of Agriculture. And this was um, this was a major campaign for the RSPB during the First World War. As I said, the Plumage Bill had been set aside and they campaigned against these rat and sparrow clubs. Um, and um, through their campaigning, through sending out lots of letters and leaflets and through their work in Parliament, Um, At the end of the war, they came out of this victorious and the Board of Agriculture uh, no longer promoted these clubs. Um, But they did an immense amount of damage um, to the small birds in the countryside. You know, they were killed on a scale um, equivalent to our troops in the trenches, you know, in France. Um, And it seems amazing to us now that that, that we would go about doing that. Um, But that actually that actually happened and that campaign. Um, from the RSPB, really sort of helped to establish it as the as the force for conservation that we know today. Um, it was during the First World War that it really cut its teeth and and sort of um, and that uh, and started to become, as I say, uh, you know what's what is now Europe's largest um, conservation organisation.
0: And how did soldiers and military personnel use birds in their sort of active lives uh, in the trenches and, and other places?
1: From the outset of of the First World War, the military um, recruited the birds that it wanted. So, um, first of all, there were pigeons and we're all very familiar with those, you know, uh, messenger pigeons um, that were used. Um, uh, And, um, you know, uh, they... Over 100,000 of them were were, were 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 used during during the war. And um, the military also made use of canaries. Um, that's less well known, and um, they put them, uh, it was the canaries, you know, we're all familiar with the canaries going down the mines, and when there's a buildup of gases there, um, they fall off their perch. Um, the reason for that is canaries are much, much more sensitive to poisonous gases in the atmosphere than humans are, and they're, so they're an early warning system. And that's exactly how they use them in the trenches as well, they would, um, Uh, There was a lot of digging underneath trenches and putting in um, and and explosions and and, and, um, uh, and canaries would be deployed during, you know, in that role. So you would have, you know, in a a typical trench, you would have um, uh, you would have um, uh, pigeons, which would be used as messengers um, and um, you would probably have, you know, probably in the uh, in the officer's Uh, hut as well you know you'd have a couple of couple of canaries and these soon became like regimental pets Um, and um, again you know uh, the troops soon started to 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 feel very sort of protective towards them and um, uh, you know and and would feed them some of their you know some of their rations etc you know and um, uh, so that's the way those two birds in particular pigeons and canaries were used by the were used by the military in the war but there was also lots of other um, sort of less well-known um, uses of birds. Um, the French used the sentinel ability of, of 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 birds like pheasants and other things in an early warning system. Amazingly, put some of them um, up the Eiffel Tower because they were they they could detect Zeppelin airships and aeroplanes from a lot lot longer distance than humans could. So uh, there was that, and there was there was the use of gulls as well. Gulls were extensively um trial during the first world war um, as a way of detecting u-boats um, and um, uh, you know amazingly though it seems and um, we carried the admiralty carried out serious sea trials into using seagulls um, and the idea was that um as the seagulls followed the trawlers um then um they they would um be able to find u-boat periscopes by um uh, and they had a series of trials going down at Plymouth um, with, with gulls going up and down, defecating on, um, on, on periscopes with uh, them, with, um, um, trying to sort of see whether or not this would, uh, this would be a good way of being able to detect um, submarines. Um, in the end, those sea trials didn't, didn't, didn't come to anything because uh, the Admiralty was extremely conservative. Um, bunch of people, and they didn't—they uh, didn't think that there was a there was a, a future in it. And uh, we developed a convoy system and other ways of, of protecting um, our merchant shipping. But they, as I say, they were seriously—they um, were seriously looked at as a way of as a way of combating the threat of the U-boat. Which, just like the Second World War, the First World War was exactly the same. Was was deemed to be the greatest threat to the Empire and to Britain being able to carry on was if they cut off our uh, our supply routes. And then you, you also talk about a lot about the RSPB. What impact did
0: the war have on the RSPB as an organisation?
1: The RSPB was quite a small organisation at the start of the First World War, but it was growing rapidly. Um, and, um, uh, you know, it had received its Royal Charter a few years previously. As I say, it was running a, a very high-profile campaign on um, banning um, the use of feathers in women's hats. Um, and it put an awful lot of work into that plumage bill um and was i I think you know when the first world war broke out that was put aside um and they were um you know and i think they were um extremely um you know uh, sad about that because it was on the verge of becoming becoming law but what they did and, and and the first world you know at the start of the first world war there were a lot of um There's a lot of soul searching went on within the RSPB, I think, about, you know, about their role. What possible role could a bird organisation have when here is, you know, Britain fighting for its very life? um, You know, and um, but as I say, you know, through those letters home, it soon started to establish a role and through its campaigning work, you know, particularly against the Rat and Sparrow Clubs, um, but also highlighting um, the fact that um, a lot of birds did quite well during the First World War um, away um, um, from, um uh, farms so for example a lot of gamekeepers were called up to the colors and so birds of prey and other things which had been widely persecuted unfortunately tom still are up on our upland moors got a chance to um breed and to so so we actually saw some some recovery of, of birds during the first world war it was also very nice it's a nice story uh, towards the uh towards the middle of the war in, in in later moss later moss is now one of the rspb's premier um reserves Um, but in the first world war it was um it was a it was all agricultural land um which was drained those were coal powered pumps that were used to drain the land um but during the first world war the price of coal became um too expensive and they didn't have the manpower so they stopped uh, draining the land um and uh, as a result of that reflooded and as i say it's now one of their premier uh, nature reserves um with really good populations of both house and tree sparrows so um uh, there were some, there are some nice stories there about. Um, but the, the RSPB came of age during the First World War. Um, that's when it, that's when it showed its mettle. That's when it, it really started to campaign to um, to use Parliament to, uh, you know, to grow its membership to become a force for conservation, which it which it is today. And you can see that change happening during wartime.
0: Now. Let's turn to the back of the book, uh, and you actually have something called an ornithological role of honor, uh, obviously mm-hmm. listing lots of soldiers so what what is this about, and can you tell us some of the stories um, that this sort of um cap- it captures
1: sure, yes, yeah. so, so the ornithological role of honor is just stories of a few you know there's 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 i think there's about sort of thirty seven odd stories in the back of the book of of, of men who made the ultimate sacrifice, but who for whom birds were an incredibly important part of their lives, um, and um, this was reflected in their letters home and in their in, in, in their life before they were called up. And um, uh, I suppose for me, it, it signifies the potential um, that a lot of these men would have had had they have lived. Um, you know, I think ornithology would have been much the richer. Um, and a couple of just a couple of examples, um, uh, you know, that sort of stand out for me. Um, one was um, a private called Maxwell Green, who was killed in April 1915 at the age of 19. Um, he'd come out to um, France in January. He was killed three months later by a sniper shot straight through the head. Um, and um, on his body, they they, they found um, he'd started to... Um, uh, do a, a bird report, um, which he wanted to, to send into the Selborne magazine. And Selborne magazine was the um, magazine of um, Gilbert White, uh, that uh, the most famous naturalist in the world, um, who lived at Selborne. Um, they had they had a magazine, and he'd written down about the birds that he'd seen in Flanders, and um, he'd written all these on tiny scraps of paper, and it was in with the March issue of the magazine. It was found on his body, and. Um, uh, and it was sent back to his father together with his possessions and um, his father sent it on to the editor and i'll just read you what um what the editor said because it's it's sort of it's, it's 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 quite moving um uh and um the editor stated it is with melancholy pleasure that we print the letter above together with the notes which accompanied it um and he was buried near the Ypres, um and it, the colonel attended his funeral so um that's one nice little story you know and who knows what he would have gone on to have done um and the other one i think at the other end of the spectrum so so he was he was a he was a private and um was uh, somebody called lord lucas uh, lord lucas was a um was killed in 1916 um he was shot down over the german lines uh, bringing to the end a life that read like something out of a boy's own magazine. I mean, it was just, it was just amazing. He was born in 1876. He inherited, um, uh, he, he became a lord in 1907. Um, and um, he spent his early life as a, as a reporter for the Times newspaper. He went out to the Boer War. He got wounded, had his leg amputated um, below the knee, undeterred by his disability. He never once sort of made any... Um, you know, um, made anything about, uh, you know, said he should be treated in any way differently. He joined the Hampshire Yeomanry, became a captain, um, and then um, uh, began an amazing political career when Asquith formed the government in 1908. He had several junior posts at the start of the First World War, um, joined the cabinet. He was the um, president of the Board of Agriculture. Um, And so he sat around the table with Winston Churchill. But he found political life tedious, he found it boring. Um, and um, a year later, he resigned when, when asked um, formed the coalition government to try and hold on um, and joined the Royal Flying Corps. And then he um, he was too old um, uh, at 39, but he got a pilot's license, went over, first of all, as an instructor. And then, of course, when things um, got desperate for us, um, started, you know, you know, was involved um, in, in an affray and he was leading a photo reconnaissance mission when he was shot down and attacked by three enemy planes. So you couldn't couldn't really make it up. But also, he was a passionate conservationist and ornithologist. And when he wasn't, um, you know, uh, being a politician or or, or or flying or writing for the Times, his great passion was ornithology. And he went and um, he's uh, he's he's credited with bringing back the marsh harrier as a breeding bird. Um, he went to he was a uh, a regular visitor at Hickling Broad. He established Hickling Broad it's now a national nature reserve. He was the one who established that. And um he went there with um Sir Edward Gray, who was the Foreign Secretary, who was again another really big ornithologist, features in the book. Um, and they, they formed that reserve. And um, I've got a nice little sort of quote here. So they they employed the local gamekeeper as as, as as a as a nature reserve warden, which is an interesting um gamekeeper term poacher type role. But anyway, uh, and, and he said um uh, and he went there and visited just before, just not long before he died, and he said. This was the gamekeeper speaking. Lord Lucas was delighted. He dashed home to see the sight, for he adored birds of prey. As we sat on the grassy bank and saw the marsh harrier go down to its nest on our right hand, and on our left, a Montague's harrier settle on her eggs, his lordship turned to me with a sparkle in his eyes and said, By Jove, Jim, this is the next greatest sight to the war so you know his his is an amazing story and his, his 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 ancestral home rest park is now um now features on on you know regularly on the antiques Roadshow. for example you can see you can see fiona bruce wandering around um there and um you know it's it's but that's 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 a couple of people and who knows what they would have gone on to gone on to do and there are so many of them um who, who excelled at ornithology not just you know not just in Britain but around you know around the world throughout the empire um, and who died you know um, uh, you know mainly in the trenches in the first world war but across all the theaters of war um you know the uh, the Dardanelles and Gallipoli and you know in the far east um, and their, their potential they were all young, mostly young men of huge great promise and who knows what, what they would have gone on to have done had they have lived um, and I think that's that's what makes the first world war tragic but also sort of unique um, was that in the second world war was a much more mobile war you know people you didn't have the static trench warfare that you did you didn't you know and there was a lot the 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 options for for bird watching were there but were were much more limited so yeah that's 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 why I did the ornithological role of honour because I thought these their stories, I wanted to tell their stories again. You know, they're all commemorated in Cold Stone and the cemeteries, uh, you know, dotted, uh, you know, across Europe and around the world. Um, but, but I wanted to try and inspire people. Um, I don't, you know, whenever I feel a bit sorry for myself, I read one of their, one of their um, stories and I, I realise how lucky I am.
0: And then my penultimate question is a claim, it refers to a claim made on the front of the book. And you say that ornithology helped win the war. And I'm going to challenge you. Did it? <laughs>
1: It's a big claim, isn't it? It's a big claim. Well, I think it. I, I I think it did because it provided. Um, you know, as I said, it provided, uh, solace and hope, um, to our troops. And um, you know, I think that um, birds also served. As I said, you know, we've we've, we've talked a bit about about pigeons and canaries and others, um, and. um you know they they all they all played a part in maintaining morale um at, at, at the front line and that was that was just incredibly important and um you know a lot of the um a lot of the uh, ornithologists both the amateur birders and the professional ones who were in the trenches were, were members of a lot of organizations not just the RSPB you know others the British Ornithologist Union you know the Zoological Society of London um lots of lots of organizations and uh, those who survived went back and they were the backbone uh, they were the building blocks of the conservation movement which had really established itself by the second world war now you know we're, we're lucky we you know we can count um eight million people eight million people in britain tom are now members of, of some sort of conservation organization and um you know when uh, we've seen all of them mobilized relatively recently with the so-called attack on nature that we've had um and um you know a lot of that dates back to um uh you know uh the time of the first world war that's that's when that's when things changed because when the troops went back afterwards they wanted to build a, a better world and they wanted to conserve what was around them because they'd seen such awful awful things first world War.
0: and my final question is where can people get the book from and learn more about your work
1: They can get the um, book um, online, you know, all the usual places. It's published by Pen & Sword. So if you go on their website, that would be that would be great. Um, But, um, uh, you know, it's obviously it's available on Amazon and elsewhere. Um, If people want to learn a little bit more about about me and my work, there's I I do have a website www.nick-milton.com. That's that's about my first book, which was uh, about um, the Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain, who was another great bird watcher. Um, and he used birds as as his sort of um, hinterland and his and solace um, in the run up to the Second World War. He would regularly pop out of, of of the back of Downing Street. Seems amazing. Now, the pressure he was under was absolutely immense in the run up to the war. And he would uh, he would go out there and he would go to St. James's Park, Tom. And, and if there was a rare bird would turn up. He had a bird watching friend who used to give him a tip off. And uh, he used to to go out the back door and just leave all of that behind and go and see the Kestrel or go and see the... um you know a rare duck or whatever had turned up there and then come back into downing street quite amazing so that's that's yeah they can find out more about that online
0: nicholas thank you very much for your time thank you tom you have been listening to the mentioned in dispatches podcast from the western front association with me tom thorpe thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition